We're going to begin our time together this morning. We're going to jump into our new series with a question. And so find a neighbor near you that is friendly or cute and ask them this. How many places of worship do you think there are in this country? So how many places of worship in our country? Get your best guess. Share with the person next to you. Just do that real quickly. Um, Ready? Go. How many places of worship in our nation do you believe? All right. Okay. According to a recent survey done by the American Religion Data Archives, the number they came up with after this survey survey was 250,402. Yeah, some of you were real close, right? 250,402 places of worship in our nation. But I'll tell you something, friends. I think they were wrong. I think they missed it. I think they, they came up a little short and missed the, the actual total by more than just a few. You see, there is a building near here made of steel and glass, and tomorrow morning thousands of people will pour into that building and sit behind desks or in cubicles or in offices, and some of them will find their ultimate sense of purpose Identity, worth in that place. In that building, some people will give the best of their time, the best of their effort, the best of their lives. They will sacrifice their emotional well-being, some of them, even their families, for success in that building. You see, for some, that's the place where they will give their hearts. For some of these people, even though they don't know it, that building is actually their place of worship. That's their temple. There's another building near here where they have a big safe, and in that vault they keep money. And for some people, their primary, their ultimate sense of security and safety comes from how much money they have in that safe, in that building. And if you observe them, if you were to watch their life really carefully and ask the question, where have they put their faith? What is it they trust in ultimately to provide peace and hope and joy? You would find that they have put their faith in the God of that building. Because the truth is that we all rely on something. And that building is where they place the object of their worship, their God, the thing that they ultimately and truly rely on. There's another building, one not far from here, where all the walls have mirrors and the priests and priestesses dress in spandex and leotards, some of them. And because it's March now, this temple is not as full as it was back in January, but many people still find their primary source of confidence in this place because in our society, we're told this, the way our bodies look is actually what gives us worth. If we look a certain way, then we have value. Then we really matter. And many in our world go to places like this to worship, to worship the God of appearance. For others, in our society, their temple may be a mall or a stadium or a school or some other place. The the list is really endless. But here's the deal, friends. We all, every single one of us, every single human being who walks on this planet treasures something above everything else in their life. 
We just do. All of us. We can't help it. We are a worshiping people. Do you know why? We were created to worship. We were made that way. We all, every single one of us, give our devotion, our ultimate devotion to somebody. We all offer our ultimate sacrifices to something. All of us look for the blessed life somewhere. And that place is our place of worship. Tim Keller has written a terrific book called Counterfeit Gods that we are using as sort of a jumping off point for this series. And in it, he makes this claim. The central principle of the Bible is actually the rejection of idolatry. The rejection of letting anything other than God drive your life. That's the primary message of the scriptures, according to Keller in this book. He, he uses some arguments. Commandment number one, the first of the big ten. Have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, do not make for thyself any graven image. Do not worship anything that you can make with your hands. And then the primary text he argues for the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus hearkens back to this verse. You'll recognize these words from him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In other words, friends, make sure that God is the one who is guiding and directing and leading and driving your life. See, this morning we are jumping into this series called Hijacked, and the idea behind this series is exactly what the Bible warns us about time and time again. There are things in this world, there are forces in this world that will try and hijack your life and lead you down a path away from worshiping God and away from all that God wants and intends for you to experience. There are hijacking forces at work and at play all around us every single day, all the time. And this morning we are looking at one of these forces, one of the primary forces, one of the more powerful forces you will encounter on this, in this world. Today we're talking about the force of sex and sexuality. And our question today is how? How does sex become something that is worshipped? How does sex move in and take control? How does sex jump in and hijack the wheel of our lives from God and lead us away from what God intends for us, especially in this area of sexuality? We're going to look at a number of ways this morning. First of all, sex can hijack our lives when we don't understand God's ultimate purpose. We don't understand God's purpose for sex. Because the Bible has a ton to say about sex. How many in here have actually been to church for a long, long time and they've never heard a sermon on sex? Yeah, there's a number of you, right? That's actually a shame because the Bible talks about sex over and over and over again. It's a book that deserves a rating, actually, if you read it. Um, The rabbis in Jesus' day would talk about this. The rabbis in Jesus' day used to say that the very first commandment in the Torah... The very first commandment in the Old Testament, in the Bible, was be fruitful and multiply. The very first instructions that were given by God actually involve sex. God creates this man, you remember the story? In the very first time in the Bible that that man speaks. The very first words that ever flowed off the lips of a human being 
is when man first sees woman. It's a really, really amazing moment. It's this wonderful kind of wordplay in Hebrew, the original language, the Old Testament, because the word for Adam in Hebrew is the word ish, and the word for Eve is the word isha. See, Eve just sounds cuter already, doesn't she? Okay, Ish and Isha. And, and the story goes this way. Adam falls asleep. He comes to, and there's Eve. God has brought Eve to Adam, and he's so overwhelmed. All he can say is, let's call her Isha, because she came from Ish. And, and he doesn't really work that well unless you know Hebrew, but it's sort of like if we were saying it in English, like he's just going like, whoa. Man, whoa, man, let's just call her woman, because man, good work, God. And it's one of these moments filled with wonder and awe and excitement and passion and chemistry. And it's one of these, these times where the Bible says, you know, hey, this is a really special thing. There's something really magical that's happening here. And the very next thing it says in the scriptures is for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become what one flesh and that term one flesh it don't mistake it it does not just simply refer to the physical he is not just talking about a physical act here in the bible flesh is actually a word that's used to describe a whole person uh, in Ezekiel, for example, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all mankind. So it's a very holistic word. And the Bible says that when a man and a woman get married, they are now embarking on a journey. The journey of becoming one person. Of experiencing an amazing, intimate oneness with one another, with each other. The, the journey of becoming one flesh. And part part, a huge central core part of the one flesh journey, God says, is this physical part, this sexual part. The gift of God, one of the tools he gives us so that we can become one flesh with another. In verse 25 it says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So from the beginning, God intends that this one flesh experience, this whole and sexual experience that we're going to have is going to be free of shame and it's going to be free of embarrassment and it's going to be free of regret. It's a oneness so intense that you can be completely and utterly vulnerable without any fear. That's what God's desire was for, for marriage and for sex from the very beginning. And, and he says to Adam and Eve, this kind of intimacy is now available to you because you made a promise Eve, only you, says Adam. Adam, only you, says Eve. No one else. Now, it was a little easier back then because there actually was no one else. But nevertheless, the point is made. So in the Bible, friends, here's the point. From the very beginning, sex is this very sacred thing. It's it's a sacrament-like moment. It's an outward sign that points to this enormous inward reality that two people, are bonded in becoming one flesh, one person together. Now, one of the ways you discover, by the way, how a culture thinks about sexuality is by asking this question. So if you want to go to any culture in the history of the world and you want to know how they view and how they think about sexuality, ask this question, you'll get a lot of clues right here. What language is used to describe the sexual act? 
Now you think about that and then you apply it to our world, to our society. In, in our society here, we have phrases like having sex. People talk about having sex all the time. We had sex, or we're going to have sex, or we're having sex. It's, it's, it's flippant, it's sort of casual, it's like sex is just a commodity, it's just something you do. And that is certainly the way our culture thinks about sex. Or another phrase that is often bantered about, referring to sex, is the phrase, doing it. Now that's a real romantic phrase, isn't it? Hey, do you want to do it? Man, wow, thanks for like putting all the effort in to really... You know, woo me in and such, right? You know, doing it kind of emphasizes just, again, the casual nature of sex and also just the biological part that there's just this biological moment. And our world certainly holds to and thinks about sex as just a, a physical, biological act. And then, and then there's a whole list of, of very vulgar terms that we're not going to talk about today from, from the front. But they, they sort of tell us that our society sees sex as kind of a dirty thing. Kind of something that's... It's a little bit shady. But the key for us, for understanding sex from God's perspective, is to understand the main word used for sex in the Old Testament. And that is actually the Hebrew word, yada. Yada is the Old Testament word that God chooses for sex. Friends, you want to know what God thinks about sex? Ask what kind of language he uses to describe it. And the word yada is actually a very simple word. It means to know. It means to have deep, intimate knowledge of. Yada. And the big, the big picture idea here behind this word is that sexual knowing was never supposed to be removed from or extracted from or separated out from the holistic commitment to know another person in every way. To know someone physically completely was always supposed to be combined with knowing them in every other way completely as well. And do you know what that describes? Do you know what that little phrase there, the holistic commitment to know another person in every way, do you know what that phrase describes? It's actually one of the definitions for marriage. The holistic commitment to know another person in every way. Friends, That's marriage. And this leads us to point number two this morning. Sex can hijack our lives when we don't understand God's boundaries. You see, so often in our world, the boundaries that the Bible puts out around sex are seen as outdated, prude, sort of old-fashioned rules that as a society, we have quite simply outgrown. But the Bible says that sexual intimacy is not just a simple act. It does not just involve body parts and tissue and nerve endings. It is not simply biology, not according to the scriptures. Friends, let me tell you something that I think is essential to understanding living a spiritual life with God in this world. And a lot of times this is something that we do not well understand even in the church. Bodies and souls are much more connected than people think. Sometimes, especially in the church, we kind of want to segment out people's bodies from their souls. And yet the Bible does not do this. They are much more intertwined than than most people are aware of. A writer by the name of, of Craig Barnes says that, according to the Bible, God did not create you as a soul and then just wrap you in a disposable body. 
He created Adam's body first, we're told, and then he breathed into it the breath of life. And that means that what goes on with your body is intimately connected with what goes on in your soul. They are inextricably linked. This is why scripture says that sexual intimacy of any kind is intended by God to be reserved for a husband and a wife within the bonds of marriage. It's not just because God is a killjoy. It's because he knows that something greater is at stake than just a physical act. Let me summarize what God would say here for you real quick. God says, if you are not married to somebody, keep your hands off of their soul. Because when you become sexually intimate with another person, it's not just physical. There's actually a spiritual transaction that takes place and souls start to mingle together. Do not mingle your soul with someone that you are not going to be committed to for the rest of your life. Paul actually echoes this thought writing to Christians in Corinth when he says flee from sexual immorality and there's a lot of conversation about this word sexual immorality basic definition of it is sexual intimacy of any kind with someone you are not married to flee from sexual intimacy of any kind with someone you are not married to all other sins a person commits are outside the body but whoever sins sexually sins against their own Body. See, Paul understands the connection between bodies and souls. In fact, Jesus, he takes this, he understands this, obviously, he created it all. He, under, he understands it and takes it so seriously that he actually takes it a step further. He says, do not even toy around with going outside of God's boundaries for sex, even if it's just in your brain. Don't even mess around outside of God's boundaries sexually, even if it's just in your fantasy life or in your mind. Don't even go there up here. Now, on the flip side, the Bible also speaks of sexual intimacy within marriage being vitally important. And this leads us to point number three. Sex, and this is going to surprise some of you because I'm kind of going to twist it on you here. Sex can hijack our lives when we don't embrace, and I might even add, when we don't fully embrace God's plan for sex in marriage. You see, one of the common misconceptions about sex in the Bible is that God is really only concerned about people not going outside the boundaries of sex. Like, his big command is don't blow it. That's actually not his big command. That's actually not his main focus in the scriptures. A majority of what the scriptures say about sex actually has to do with what happens inside the boundaries, with what happens inside the marriage relationship sexually. The writer of Proverbs is is one of the examples of this. In Proverbs chapter 30, here's what the author says. One example of many. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. So anytime the writer of Proverbs uses this kind of language, it's meant to highlight the fourth thing. He's, he's pointing, he's looking ahead, and he's saying, hey, there's three things that are pretty amazing, and another one that will blow your brain. 
So get ready for it. And then he says, the way of an eagle in the sky. Have you ever watched an eagle in the sky just soaring around? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it cool? Like, man, wow, powerful, amazing, awesome bird. But you've seen it before. The way of a snake on a rock. And now he's kind of gone down a little bit because, I don't know, in California anyway, you saw tons of snakes on rocks. I'm not sure if that's cool in Oregon. Apparently it was here. The way of a ship on the high seas. Again, something impressive. And then the big one. And the way of a man with the woman. You see, those first three, they might be cool, they might impress you, but they are nothing compared to this gift of sex and sexuality that God gives us. The way of a man and a woman coming together. It's so wonderful and beautiful that the writer of Proverbs says, I can't even fully grasp it. Here's the point. Admiration and celebration of mutual sex, of marital sex, (laughs) I should probably get that right, It's all throughout scriptures, friends. It's all throughout the scriptures. Marital sex and the fullness and joy and beauty of it and the celebration of it is all throughout the Bible. And again, the church has not always done a good job of teaching this, celebrating it, pushing it, instructing it. Check this out. This, this is crazy stuff. Between the 3rd and 10th centuries, so if you're counting, that's a lot of centuries, lots of hundreds of years. Between the 3rd and 10th centuries... The church issued edicts to forbid husbands and wives from having sex on Thursdays because that was the day of Christ's arrest. Better not have sex, Christ got arrested. And then on Fridays, because that was the day of his death. That one kind of makes sense, but still, Friday is such a good day. And then on Sundays, out of remembrance for the saints... And then, to add to these three days, the church eventually said, no sex relations between husbands and wives during the 40 days of Lent, then during the 40 days of Advent, and then during the 40 days of Pentecost. In fact, they added so many days prohibiting sex that if you were to follow the church calendar, there were only 44 potential days a year available for married sex. Now, some of you are thinking, that sounds like a nightmare. Others... Where can I get one of those calendars? (laughs) Here's the point, friends. God never put Adam and Eve on the 44-day-a-year plan. It was not his heart. It was not his intention. It is never what he wanted. Again, from the book of Proverbs, and you may have never read this verse before, certainly not in church on the screens, but you will today. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Now, the thing I like most about this set of verses will probably shock you. What I like about this set of verses is that it's not for young couples. This is not instructions for the honeymoon. Notice this phrase. May you rejoice in what? The wife of your... Now, what is the implication here? That these two people are not youths any longer. Friends, the Bible's plan for sexuality in marriage is that it would continue even until your old age. It's not just like... A one-time deal. That This just goes on and on and gets re- richer and deeper and fuller. You see, one... <laughs> Can I get an amen from the gray-haired guys in the room? 
I said at the first service that there were some guys sitting around going, well, honey, the pastor said we probably should. Um, But that made everyone feel uncomfortable, so I was going to skip it. Okay, here's the point. One of the great myths about sex in our culture is that sex is easy. It's simple. It should always just feel natural and easy. And it's just going to flow and happen just like it does in the movies. And if it doesn't happen that way, then something must be wrong. Friends, that is simply not true. The Bible says work at this. One writer says it this way. On TV, in movies, we are, in, on TV and in movies, we are constantly bombarded with images of beautiful, attractive, sexy people with beautiful, perfect, sexy bodies living beautiful, perfect, sexy lives. In real life... Real relationships are about dirty dishes and unpaid bills and watching sick kids and getting housework done and managing job stress and coping with money stress and trying to deal with his or her goofy in-laws and being worn out and in the bedroom dealing with shyness or being afraid to talk about how's our physical relationship really going or wondering, is my body really attractive to the other person? Or feeling ignorant about what would be really exciting or pleasing or having memories that get in the way or having physical problems that sometimes make it impossible. Friends, living out God's will for your marriage sexually will not always be easy, but God said it is worth the energy, effort, and commitment He calls us to put towards it. It is, as Paul says, your Christian duty. Your Christian duty, not in the sense that it's like this thing you have to do, but this thing that God calls us to for our pleasure and His glory. Good, good thing. All right, moving on. Point four. Sex can hijack our lives when kids don't get good information. Friends, how many people's lives have gotten off track, have been hijacked at an early age because No caring Christian adult or parent took the time to talk to them about God's plan and God's hopes and God's dreams and God's desires for them in this area of their life. The chaplains of one of our country's universities did a a survey some time ago. They asked the group of incoming freshmen a ton of questions. One of those questions was, was this. Did your church significantly influence your views on sexuality? 2% of the incoming freshmen said yes. Two out of every 100 freshmen said their church had significant influence on the way they think about sex and sexuality. Friends, that is not good and I think unacceptable. Studies of American adolescents consistently find that up to three quarters of them state that they have never talked about sex with their parents. These studies also find that when parents do talk to their children about sex, their children are much less likely to engage in early sexual behavior, much, much more less likely than those who have never talked with a parent about this subject. Friends, why? Why do we have such a hard time here? If anyone should be great at this, it's us. It's Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're just a guest or a visitor, you can just listen in to some like inside family talk. We should be phenomenal about this. We should be excellent. We should have a corner on the market when it comes to talking to our kids about sex. Guess what? It's ours. 
It's God's. We have, we have more instruction right here than most people do. We should get better. We should be better. Um, one of our dear friends uh, from Ventura, one of the most awesome Christian ladies I've ever actually met, she's just a phenomenal woman, tells the story about how when she was at about that age, her mom grabbed her to have the sex talk, took her into the living room, sat her in front of the television, put a VHS adult videotape in and said, watch this, and then left. And stories like that, maybe you hear more of these kind of things when you're a pastor, but stories like that are just simply way too common. Why? Why is this such a difficult thing? Friends, you know why. It's because it can be embarrassing. It can be, it can be awkward and we feel inadequate and unskilled. And sometimes, and this is perhaps the number one reason, parents are just weird about their own past. And they're hesitant to open up a conversation in fear that their kids might ask them about what they did when they were a kid. Because friends, most of us have some skeletons in the closet. But we must not, we cannot, we will not let that hold us back from teaching our children about what God longs for them in this very critical area. Not in any church that I'm pastoring. That's not kind of bold. I didn't say that in the first service, but I, I think I'm going to stick with it. Okay. Another thing is, is that like any parent, my thoughts on, on dating and relationships and sex have been shaped significantly by the fact that I now have three children of my own. And so I found that I was a lot more bold and brash as a youth pastor before I had kids. And now that I have three kids of my own, my, my views and thoughts have started to tweak and shape a little bit. And uh, three of my kids are, are girls, and I have one son. And some time ago, I found this very useful tool to help me um, in this arena on the Internet. It's, it's titled, An Application to Date My Daughter. And I thought, you know, I might make some use of this, and I thought I'd share a little bit uh, with you today in case anybody else could benefit as well. It reads, An Application for Permission to Date My Daughter. I'll just read a few specific sections. First, there's uh, some general info, name, date of birth, height, weight, IQ, GPA, important things. Then it moves along. It says, how fast can you run 40 yards? How fast can you run two miles? Do you own a van, a truck with oversized tires, a waterbed? Do you have an earring, nose ring, belly button ring? If you answered yes to any of number four, discontinue and leave the premises. In 50 words or less, what does late mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does don't touch my daughter mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does abstinence mean to you? And then there's a little bit more personal uh, fill-in-the-blank section. If I were shot, the last place on my body I would want to be wounded is in the... If I were beaten, the last bone I would want broken is my... When I first meet a girl, the first thing I usually notice about her is... Then there's this note, this little response. It says, if you answered in the way I think you did, discontinue and leave premises. Keep your head low and run in the serpentine fashion. That's advised. Thanks for your interest. You will be contacted in writing if you are approved. Please allow four to six years for processing. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that's kind of a funny like moment of levity in the midst of our kind of awkward church sex sermon. Uh, but the point I want to make is this, out of it, actually. A lot of times when it comes to interacting with our kids around this subject, our conversation stays in the do and don't category. We never really 
get beyond here's what you can do and mostly here's what you cannot do. And we have a lot of fun with things like this where it's about rules and regulations and prevention and, and kind of monitoring. But we never go the step further and talk with our kids about what God really longs for them in this area. Because, you know, and, and, and Amy and I are just kind of venturing into this season with our kids right now. But when I stop and think about it, I certainly want my children to live within God's boundaries for them sexually, especially in their single years. I want them to, to, to live with a commitment to abstinence and purity in this area because I know what it will do for them. But that's not the only thing I want for them. I want more for them. And, and I want them to someday, when they meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and they get married, to have a full, rich, abundant life in this area. And that may sound weird to say because most dads do not say that about their kids. But it is true. And the reason I want it is because that is what God wants for them. And I can be a part of that. I can be a part of painting a full, rich, robust picture of sexuality for my kids that is not simply rules with do's and don'ts. All right. Last point for today. Sex can hijack our lives when we let our brokenness be bigger than the cross. Friends, this is, this is one of my favorite things about Jesus. Did you know that some of the people who were most attracted to him were people in the scriptures who had experienced the deepest levels of hurt and regret and brokenness in this area? One of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible is the story where Jesus encounters a woman at a well in Samaria at 12 o'clock. It was high noon, the middle of the day. And, and there's this woman this well getting some water and there's no one else around and Jesus is there and they have this conversation and in the course of this conversation Jesus lets her know just real subtly and gracefully but under no uncertain terms that he knows all about her past he knows that she's been married five times he knows that she is living with a guy right in that moment that was not her husband and, and the reason it's kind of interesting about this story is that the reason that they're alone at the well at 12 noon is because nobody else went to the well at 12 noon. That was the hottest part of the day and so people did not go there then. But she did. And the reason she's there at 12 noon is because not only did Jesus know about her past, everybody else in the town did too. And so she goes to the well when there will be no one else around because she is tired of the stairs and she cannot stand them anymore and she can't stand the shame and she can't stand the judgment that she, that she sees constantly over and over and over again in everybody else's eyes. But Jesus, he looks at her when she looks back at him, she doesn't see that same judgment. Jesus looks at her and he loves her. He loves her in spite of her past. He loves her in spite of her present. And he says to her, you're here for water, but I've got some water to give you. And anybody who drinks from my water, they will never be thirsty again. And this woman, she'd been thirsty for a real, real long time. Friends, this morning, maybe you're here and you need some of that same water from Jesus. He offers it today the same way he did back then at that well at noon in Samaria. Maybe 
this morning, you need to hear it just one more time. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. No sin in this world can do that, not even sexual sin. Maybe you need to be reminded that there is no sin bigger than the cross. Nothing you have, are, or will ever do is more powerful than what Jesus Christ did when he hung and died on the cross and then arose again, defeating death. Nothing. Not lustful thoughts. Not a sex-struggling marriage. Not an abortion. Not an eating disorder. Not an affair. Not pornography. Not struggles with homosexuality. Not sexual addiction. Nothing. There is no sin bigger than the cross. Nothing is too big for his love and grace. And in that same vein, friends, I want to say just one quick word as we close to some of you who are here today and you've experienced sexual abuse. You've been part of a, a violation of perhaps the most personal and horrible kind. And because of this, you carry around some real deep wounds that, that make you feel dirty and tainted and vile. And if that is you today, I hope that you will hear this, not just from me, but I hope that you will hear this directly from the heart of God. You did not sin. You were sinned against in a highly destructive way that God detests. And that same God, that same God that detests that sin, He's the God of redemption and restoration. He's the God who can make whole and beautiful that very thing that sin has marred. Hear this from God. You are not damaged goods. You're just not. You're whole and beautiful and lovely and cleansed and restored because of the blood of Christ. One of the things that Jesus makes very clear is that there are not two categories of people in the world. Sexually pure and sexually unpure. Sexually holy and sexually unholy. Sexually righteous and sexually unrighteous. Friends, Jesus talking to a group of folks who thought they were righteous sexually. Talking to Jesus about adultery. What does Jesus say? He says, hey, you say all those things about adultery, but if you've even thought about a woman lustfully in your mind. In other words, we're all on the same playing field here, friends. Every single person in this room has some sort of sexual brokenness in our lives. We've got some brokenness in us sexually on some level. Every single one. And so this morning, friends, the offer of Jesus is the same offer that he made to the woman at that well. Whatever brokenness you carry, big or small, Jesus says, bring it to me. Bring it to the cross. Bring it to the table. Hand it over and watch me redeem it. Let me restore it. Let me cleanse you of it and let me get your life back on track because God does not want you to live a sexually hijacked life. He's got something so much better for you. In just a moment, we're going to come and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. The worship band's going to come and they're going to play and as they do, I want you just to take a moment and think about if there's a place in your life sexually that's broken, 
a place where you need some healing or restoration or redirection in your life right now. And then I want you to come to the table, take the bread and remember the body of Christ that was broken and the juice and the blood of Christ that was shed so that your brokenness can be restored. Come to the table, take the elements, take them back to your seat. And when you're ready, receive the body and receive the blood, receive the grace of God for any and all sin that you have or will commit even sexual sin. And if you would do just one more thing for me, you're done with that process, if you would just take a look at that, that list that we uh, talked about today, if we'd put it back up for me, our, our, I think our five points, or was it six? I want you to look at that, those points that we made, and then I just want you to ask, is there a place in one of those categories that God is calling me to take just a step forward Just to move towards him. Just one more notch. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in a habit that's just sort of kind of started to creep out of control. Maybe it's in a conversation that you need to have with one of your children. I do not know what it is for you. But someplace in your life, I'm just guessing, there's a step that God wants you to take in this area towards him, back towards his plan for your life. Will you commit to just taking one step today? One step to living the the sexual life that God so desperately longs for you to live that's the challenge so when you're ready come to the table be cleansed and be reminded of the cross and then talk to God about where you might commit let me pray Father thank you for grace and mercy and love and I'm just so thankful Lord that that you long for us to flourish in this area of sexuality and that you will get glory from it. That you will be lifted up and proclaimed and that your kingdom will advance when we embrace your way, your way in our lives sexually. So God, do what only you can do. Heal and redeem and restore and challenge and move us that we might be more your people in this world. We ask all these things in the name of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.